Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, this is The Vice Podcast. I'm Raihan Salam, and I'm joined today by Stoya, one of America's most celebrated, well-regarded adult performers, a dancer, and a columnist for Vice, among many other things. Stoya, thanks very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So Stoya, recently you wrote a really fascinating and quite odd column, which I greatly enjoyed, about the pinnacle of human achievement, and specifically about the idea that Las Vegas, the Las Vegas casino, the kind of sybaritic pleasure palace, as well as the megachurch, both represent the pinnacle of human achievement. But of course, most people would think of megachurches and casinos as being at odds, in tension with each other. So what is it that you see um, in common between these two very different institutions? Well, there's, um, there's definitely the parallel of you're paying for something that is intangible and makes you feel good. You don't get to keep it. You don't get to like touch it. It's just you're gambling, so you're having fun, and it's pushing buttons in your brain, or you're tithing to the Lord, and you're being a good person. And the main thing that was interesting to me with that is like people have free time. That's what we do. We try to give ourselves more free time constantly, and then we have this free time, and we can. What can we do with this? We can build things. We can start wars. We can have sex that has no direct fertility reasons behind it, like we're just having sex for fun, or we're having sex with people of the same gender. Yeah, or we're full of hormonal birth control, so we know we won't get pregnant or something like that. Um, Or like with food, we don't need caviar. We don't need like super fancy, it's like molded to have like be shaped like a flower, but it's really mashed potatoes. Like we don't need any of those things. And that's totally. what we naturally do is just make these ridiculous displays. Of, like look at all this free time we have because we're so smart and so resourceful. It reminds me of how I think that a lot of people when they talk about the economy, they make this distinction between the real economy and the virtual economy. This idea that, oh gosh, we should be manufacturing because making cars, that's a real thing, whereas this other stuff isn't real. But when you think about the buying and selling of cars, you don't need a car that has this brand or that has this particular image. And the value of the automobile is the sense of narrative behind it a lot of the time. So you know, in a way, the storytelling function is embedded in everything in economic life, I guess. Yes. I know nothing about economics or cars. Uh, I'll bet that's not actually true, but, but fair enough. But so, I, so I wonder, so when you see, so okay, so one issue is that I think when you think about the kind of people who identify with casino culture and uh, with pleasure and uh, the selling of sex, quote unquote, uh, versus the kind of people who give money and tithing to a church, you think of these as cultures that are very much at odds. Uh, and you know, it's almost as though one feels as though it must defeat and vanquish the other. You know what I mean? I mean, so do you think that there's some way that these two cultures can exist in peace with each other uh, and just kind of accept, hey, that's the thing that you do, that's the thing that I do, or do you think that they kind of need to be in this tension? So my mom was a like hardcore second wave feminist. She got out in the streets and did like the messy protesting for the right to abortion and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I was homeschooled, so I kind of got this weird, like, she so firmly believed, like so many of the baby boomers do, that they fought a fight that hadn't really been fought that way before. They were doing something brand new, and then they won it. Um, because I was so sheltered from a lot of the rest of the world, it was like, oh, 
I happen to have a vagina and I can do whatever I want to with my life, which had a couple of interesting effects, one of which is when I got out into the real world and was like, you're discriminating against me because I'm a woman? <laughs> like, what, what kind of relic of the past are you? Um, but more directly to the point, she um, then, when I grew up and said, you know what I want to do? Mainstream pornography. And then when I'm not doing that, I want to do these aerial shows where I'm displaying my body and wearing, you know, still tons of eye makeup and false eyelashes and it's all very aesthetically driven and it's this basically performance of a certain aesthetic stereotype of femininity. And she hates that I do porn. Hates it. And it's not that it's sex with people on camera. It's that it's so like quote unquote feminine. It's the high heels and this and that. Um, and I realized this when I did a shoot with Stephen Klein, he's a fashion photographer, um, and sort of the, the theme of the whole thing was him sexualizing me, but he's a homosexual man. So he pulled out all the androgynous parts and had me grow out all of my body hair, and it was very like, strong, posing, displaying musculature. And she loved those pictures. And like, there was one where I was bent over a toilet fisting myself, which is far more graphic and like hardcore sort of than anything I've done for Digital Playground. Because they do couples-oriented, soft. Um, but because it kind of messed with the perceptions of what a female porn star is and what one person that's marketed as conventionally attractive can be given the the context and all that kind of thing. Um, she was so pro that. And so we've just gotten to a point because we used to fight all the time. It'd be, How are you? Oh, that's great. Congratulations on the promotion. How's the cat? Awesome. My roommate's good. Oh, how's my work going? And then just like, um, and we just don't discuss work anymore. Like if it turns to work, we go, you know, this is a really contentious issue and we're not all carbon copies of ourselves. Or but you have other. a baseline of respect for each other. She thinks of you as a smart, thoughtful person. You clash in that. That's, I find that very interesting, partly because, so it sounds that what you're describing is that your mother came of age at a time when she saw a struggle. She saw a crusade. There was, something, there was a life that she wanted to build. And one thing I find interesting is that, you know, when you're looking at pornography, um, and it's in, dialogue, it's in dialogue with a broader culture, with broader gender norms. So your, your mother was delighted by this series of photographs precisely because they're in tension with certain conventions. But in a way, I guess, in a very variegated, social media-driven world, um, already those conventions are breaking down in all kinds of ways outside of the space of pornography. And I wonder, you know, does that mean that people who fetishize the traditional uh, gender norms, you know, that becomes its own kind of distinctive practice that you know is not as oppressive as it had been? Um, well, there's the the word fetishize. There are social networking slash dating sites for people who identify very strongly as having a certain fetish or being a fetishist. And in the, um, like, you know, on Facebook, there's the describe your relationship, and it's like monogamous, dating, experimenting, or like it's complicated. And in the checklist for things that you're interested in, there, um, on one of them, I remember there being a, a line about um, traditional 50s-style relationships, like it's a, that's a, that's a thing that some people say, you know, this sexually arouses me and this doesn't fit with where we've realized as a culture we need to be looking at people and treating people, but I do find this very sexually exciting, so let me find someone else who also does and then we can play like this and do this for our own enjoyment in our bedrooms or out in public to a certain degree. Um, and then also, because we've made this conscious choice, be able to look at each other and say, I know that your place in life is not to do my dishes and clean up after me and wear uncomfortable clothing all the time that restricts your movement, but we both find this enjoyable so we can then really let ourselves go when we're having fun exploring that. You mentioned earlier on having been homeschooled. How do you think having been homeschooled informed the choices that you made? Oh, that was a mess. Um, I had absolutely no clue what the real world was like. My mom just had this very 
Like, you're a woman. You happen to have a vagina. You can do whatever you want with your life. Go, have fun. Like, you want to be a doctor? Be a doctor. You want to be a this? Be a this. Figure out how to make it happen. And so when I got out into the real world, I was like, man, this is not, like, this is, sometimes people are really terrible and, like, people are not open and accepting and, like, and so I spent a good couple of years just trying to figure that out. Um, and I had a couple of very close friends that had to do things, I guess they didn't have to, out of the goodness of their heart, they did things like, oh, hey, so um, we love that you're honest. You're really, really honest. But sometimes, say, if a female coworker wants to know what you think of their shirt, they don't actually want to know what, there's a huge learning curve with, like interacting with other people, say absolutely horrible things. <laughs> like, what do you think of my shirt? Well, honestly, it's terrible. It's badly fitted. It's not a good color on you. <laughs> so basically, like learning to not always be sincere, learning how to kind of be attuned to other people's. Well, partly because I guess. So is it fair to say that the people you grew up around were generally pretty open and straightforward about how they were feeling? So there wasn't that element of politics in your interactions with. We them? moved a lot. Um, and then being like homeschooling, I was on sort of a different schedule and I didn't have the sort of the framework of like, oh, these are kids that I've grown up with my mm-hmm. whole life. It was like, oh, hey, so we live in the same place for like a year, but I've got this thing to read. And then like, I've got free time on Tuesday morning when you're in school. So, so I didn't really have strong relationships as a child. So at what point did you start feeling as though, and maybe you didn't start feeling this way, so I shouldn't assume that, but was there a point where you were kind of like, okay, now I've learned how to navigate the world of the civilians. I mean, these people who are square. Uh, and now the fact that I am not encumbered by the same things that they are encumbered by, gives me an advantage. You know, as an observer, as a bit of an outsider, it allows me to, but also someone who kind of knows roughly what they, did that, did that happen in that sense or? Mm, sort of, kind of, but not really. Um, I really realized that there were like basic things about the way that most people are taught to think and the way that I was taught to think that are very different. Um, a couple of months after I started doing hardcore porn, I was like, oh, this is, like, I thought, all right, my mom's going to be a little, like, not too stoked, but I like having sex. I have this offer to have sex on camera for a living with people that I want to have sex with, and like, so on and so forth, all these details. I'm going to do that. And then encountering the press and encountering people on the internet, it was like, oh man, this is, I mean, I'm cool with my choice, but this is like a thing that's still a huge thing to a lot of people. Um, And it was less, oh, I have an advantage because of, and more, these are differences, and I have these differences that I can use to my advantage, but, um, our, our old publicist who had, um, she had a lot of sort of molding influence on my career and the way that I present myself and helped smooth down some more of those rough edges. She would say that everyone's greatest strength is also their biggest weakness. It's like, I don't, I don't understand a lot of ways of thinking that most people take for granted. So I can either bumble around through life being confused and not being on the same page with everyone, or I can use that as an opportunity to learn and go, oh, you think this way. Is that way perhaps, like, are there things I can learn from that? And um, it did always make me think more about differences, I think, where it's like like back to the, the casinos and the Christians. People who are gambling, most of the time, they may be harming themselves if it's out of control, but they're not harming other people. They just want to have fun and do something that feels good to them. And Christians are sometimes like the the completely right wing, like the Westboro Baptist Church and all that, they're harming other people, but most of the time they're not harming anyone. They just want to do something that makes them feel good, which is doing what they believe is right. And that core principle is something that most of us have in common. We want to do things that feel good. Um, 
and sometimes the details of that, like you don't you don't have to pick a um, a giant heated debate about like oh you believe in God and I don't or you believe in a different God than I do. You just like hey we both like doing good things like. One thing I find interesting though is and you know this is obviously very contested and it's you know lots of different opinions about this. One thing I find interesting, so a lot of what we've been talking about is the way in which we've moved away from common frameworks. You know, the idea that, you know, the 50s traditional gender roles, you know, kind of that's a thing and that's the dominant thing and everyone ought to be like this and any departure from this is bad to a world in which, well, that's one way we can live and if that makes people happy, et cetera. And, you know, one possibility is that as you move away from those common frameworks, that creates a lot of instability and confusion and uncertainty that some people are able to navigate well and other people have a much harder time navigating. And you know, when you describe your own independence of mind and you know, the fact that you know, learning with your mother gave you that skill set to not need to be given commands but to really naturally and independently know how to learn and respond to new situations, I often wonder, when you think about a lot of the anxiety about economic change and everything else, the idea that you know, our jobs are not guaranteed for life and, and what have you, that that's the anxiety, that people are kind of longing for someone to tell them you know, what to do. They're longing for some kind of stability. And I wonder you know, kind of how you react to that. I mean, is your feeling that, well, it just doesn't exist. It was always an illusion, so get over it and move on? Or is it, I mean, do you kind of understand that longing for stability and structure? First of all, I think the, the openness and the respect for everyone's freedom of choice becomes our common framework. I think that's what's happening. Um, I think there have always been people who believe in that, and I think it's just now that's beginning to take over as opposed to, like, you do it this way or you do it this way, or you fight the man. It's, it's very superficial and trite, but when we were talking about Measure B for so many months last year before the election day. Um, you tell us about Measure B? That's the condoms and porn law. So this group called the AHF, the AIDS Healthcare Federation, they do really good things. They take the, the newer um, instant HIV tests that give results in like 20 minutes or something. They just take carloads full of them down to places where there are people who are at risk or like higher concentrations of people who are at risk and they test them and they say, you know, we're not asking you to come into the clinic. We're not asking you to come in and then come back in two days later. We're not asking you to wait for days. Like here, just please spit on this and let us test it. And then, um, and they, from what I hear, do very good things with taking care of people who have HIV or have AIDS. Um, but they, for some reason, turned their attention onto the porn industry and said, and it's, um, it's important to make the distinction between mainstream gay porn, mainstream straight porn, and the queer porn that's mostly coming out of San Francisco. Um, with this, we're only talking about the mainstream straight porn industry because a lot of the gay companies, from what I understand, use condoms just as a matter of fact. <clears throat> they rely more on condoms than they do on testing. And queer porn, they love barriers. Like, they just love the crap out of them. Um, but the, the straight porn industry, we use testing. And it's a, it's a very small group of people. We're all having sex with each other all the time. We're so gossipy. Like, if someone's shooting heroin, you're gonna know about it. If someone's, like, if someone's engaging in high-risk behavior, we're all, like, all the time, like, oh, did you hear about this? Did you hear about this? Oh my god, I saw this person on this website. Um, and we were getting tested every 30 days, minimum. Um, and then the, one of the larger companies in porn had just started requiring testing every two weeks. Um, the AHF looked at straight porn and said, you guys must be riddled with AIDS. And if you're not riddled with AIDS, then you're gonna be soon. And they, they pulled up statistics that weren't entirely accurate, like with this company called um, Adult Industry Medical, and they're no longer in business. They weren't perfect, but they were doing something very good. Um, and that's where all of our testing went through. So if someone tested positive for gonorrhea, they go, hey, so who did you work with? 
in the past, you know, whatever the incubation period is, they knew the windows that they needed to ask about history, and they'd call all those people, hey, cancel your scenes, come in, pee in the cup, um, so they would track it down, and they, um, I believe the AHF was saying they'd had 11 reported cases of HIV in the past eight years, but that was mostly people who wanted to work in porn and then were told, we're sorry, you know, and that gets into this whole like discrimination thing too because you shouldn't discriminate against someone with HIV if you're hiring them to work in a coffee shop. But if you're hiring them to have sex with people, that becomes this weird gray area where in that specific case, like you have to disclose that. Um, or you should have to disclose that. Um, so they, they were skewing the statistics and so on and so forth. Like, you guys need to use condoms. And we kind of all sat around and scratched our heads and went, man, none of us are really into politics. And like, why are you even doing this? Like, okay, is it, is it about safer sex education? Because that makes sense. Like, that's, yeah, there are totally, you know, we don't like to admit it or think about it or dwell on it. We certainly don't market to them. But there are people under the age of 18 who, like, look at GIFs of people having sex on Tumblr or something like that. And it's, um, it's taken out of context. And beyond that, we don't really push the knowledge very hard that we're so tested and that we look at each other's genitals before we do a scene and if something doesn't smell right or doesn't look right or there's something that looks like an odd like wound or sore, then we're not doing the scene. Um, so it's, you know, that, that information, that knowledge isn't necessarily getting to kids and they're seeing us all having all this sex without condoms. So maybe we should, um, Maybe we should do something like put ads for condoms or like safer sex ads. Maybe we should push that more on the tube sites and on the places where porn companies advertise. Like that would make sense. We'd be down for that. Mm -hmm. Or um, kink.com has this uh, before their scenes and after they explain like these people are engaging in a fantasy. This is not, for instance, a woman getting raped. She's screaming and saying, no, 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 because that is part of her fantasy. She has a safe word that is not, no, stop, please don't. It's like bicycle or red or something. And that's, that is within this world. That's the word that means no. So they explain things like that. And we don't push that as hard as we should in the mainstream porn industry. We don't say, you know, hey, this is a fantasy the reason that you're seeing people having sex with no condom is because this person was tested two days ago and this person was tested 14 days ago and they've looked at each other's genitals and smelled them and touched them and gone, yeah, that looks cool. Um, but then the HF and the, the Measure B people were like, no, it has nothing to do with safer sex education. They're like, well, why? Interesting. <clears throat> so it passed, um, it passed in November and I think it was 56% yes, maybe a little under 56%. So they're essentially saying that if, it, if a sexual act is depicted and if it's filmed in the state of California, you must <laughs> portray the sexual act being performed with um, <clears throat> prophylactic. In Los Angeles County. Got it. But it's also, it's a law and like, um, for instance, with traffic laws, I know I said earlier I don't know anything about cars, but um, <laughs> with traffic laws, there's so many of them, and they're written in such a way that if, um, if an officer wants to stop you, they can find a reason to stop you. They might not be able to find a reason to take you to jail, but they can find a reason to stop you and see if you behave suspiciously. And that just gives them more leverage over yeah. the process. And so with the, with the condom law, it's written a little vaguely, and so we're not actually entirely sure um, exactly what's required. But really what's happened is we just shoot outside of Los Angeles County and we'll deal with what to do if they get it passed in the state of California when it looks like they're gonna get it passed in the state of California. One thing I wonder about is when you're looking at how many feminists approach pornography, there, 
appears to be a divide, with some folks who believe that what we want is more dignity for sex workers, we want to be sure that they're protected, that their work is valued, and that we accept that money is going to change hands for this kind of work. Whereas there are others who seem deeply uncomfortable with the idea of money changing hands around things that belong in the space of intimacy, uh, including sexual intimacy. Uh, and I wonder about your feelings about this. I mean, it seems that you, know, you are comfortable with the idea of uh, sex in the market you know, being intertwined. Uh, in your conversations and you're thinking about the subject, I mean, you know, what is your case? What are your thoughts about it? Um, oh boy, that it seems like the loudest people are the ones that are like on either end of that, where they're either like, this is horrible and an awful thing for all women, it creates all these problems and so on and so forth. Um, or the ones on the other end that are like, the mere fact that you put on a pretty outfit and then let someone slap a bunch of makeup on you and have sex on camera and enjoy it is liberating to women. And it, it's, it's not. Um, I don't think it's either thing. I think that every once in a while, seeing someone, seeing your own, seeing yourself or seeing your own desires reflected in pornography because sex is not openly discussed as much as, say, food or even politics. Um, I think that can be a healthy and liberating thing for people where they go, oh, I'm not weird. Like, this is, this is okay, this is a thing, and now I can like, actively, consciously think about it myself or discuss it with my partner or my partners or so on and so forth. Um, but outside of that, there's nothing liberating about it. There's no political statement being made that maybe um, it might be liberating and statement making when you're in like the, the feminist porn, the queer porn, the crash pad series, um, some of Tristan Taramino's work. But that's, again, that's not mainstream commercial porn. Mainstream commercial porn is mainstream and commercial. That's my job, just like it's a lawyer's job to go to work and deal with all these papers all day and look up cases and that have set precedents and say, okay, so between this and this and this, I think I can safely say that you can do this. Um, and just like it's a banker's job to go and push around money and um, just like it's a waitress's job to go, that's, you, you gotta have a job. Well, and if you don't have a job, you're rare um, if you're able to take care of yourself without having a job. This is something I find really interesting. I was having a conversation recently with a friend, and I have this framework. It's very crude, and uh, many people find it distasteful. Uh, but I mean, I tend to think about everything in the context of investment. Uh, or, you know, so for example, you know, you're becoming close to someone. We're forming a friendship. Partly it's that, hey, I'm making a bet that you're a cool person and I'm investing time in this relationship and I realize that if you have a close friend over years and years, let's say you live in different cities, you are making an active effort to remain close to that person. So in a way you could think of that as a kind of investment and you yield a return in the sense, it could be any kind of, you know, any number of things. It could be that your friend is such a difficult and unpleasant person that you actually benefit from, wow, I needed this unpleasantness in my life. You know, like for whatever reason, this is teaching me to be a better person, you know what I mean? And she was so offended by this idea and you know, she was just saying that, you know, I know that you're not like this. You don't think about what you're going to get out of it. But the thing is, it's not that I'm only looking to get pleasure out of any given relationship. It's, it's a complicated mix of things. And partly, we turn to other people to be surprised by them. You know what I mean? So it's kind of like, but I do think that part of what you're describing is that, you know, there are exchanges. And intimacy always does involve a kind of exchange. And I think that the way that I think about it, which could be wrong, is that people seek security and stability and safety. Not everyone, and sometimes you seek danger, but you seek security in danger. You know what I mean? Like, you, I want to hmm. be in danger, but I also want to be safe while I'm feeling in danger. Or the seeking of danger is maybe a reaction to the natural drive to seek security. Exactly, exactly. And so I kind of think that, and that's something that, so I'm, I feel very torn about this, you know, about um, intimacy in the market, partly because we're permitting all of these. So when you're talking about the banker, so the banker is partly like, gosh, I'm engaging these financial transactions. But you choose a banker in part, or you, you know, in part by what they're conveying. 
you know, this woman is conveying a great confidence and self-assuredness, and that's part of what I'm buying, mm. you know, or with a lawyer or accountant or anyone. And that has an erotic dimension to it. You know, I mean, even if it's with people, you know, it's not someone I would be attracted to, but I mean, it's, and so I kind of feel like disentangling those things is harder than people think when they try to draw a black, you know, like a very clear black line. It is, it is, or it's even, um, you know, I'm by no means trying to, like, accuse homemakers of being, like, prostitutes that refuse to admit it or anything. I've, I know I've seen that line of thinking in certain feminist literature, not all of it. Um, I'm shoving my foot so far into my mouth in an effort to be politically correct. <laughs> but, um, like, for instance, if you are a woman who marries, well, if you're anyone who enters a marriage or a partnership with another person and the two of you have children and the work gets divided up as person A goes to work, brings home the money, person B takes care of the kids, cleans the house, feeds them. Like food is just as intimate and important and life perpetuating of a thing as sex. And it's like to to say it's perfectly okay for like walk around New York, every block there's like six restaurants where you go and you pay for people to feed you. And to say that that's okay, but it's not okay to pay for depictions of sex for your own sexual gratification or to pay for someone who wants to or is willing to sell actual sex or physical proximity like a stripper or something like that, um, that that indicates that it's not really, like we're being clouded by moral panic when we're looking at the issue. It's like everything is transactional, everything. It reminds me of what you had said before about food and caviar, for example, just the idea of the cultivation of taste and the artifice that's built around the kind of food that's the most prized in our culture. And the idea that similarly, uh, when you think about sexual acrobatics or some of the things that are kind of depicted in, in film, uh, you know, the idea that this is a skill that can be cultivated and can be celebrated by virtue of being cultivated to this high sheen. I guess the concern with it is this idea that there's a danger, and when you talk about moral panic, I think this is just the idea of there's a pollution, the idea that, you know, kind of if this idea goes out into the world, it can somehow be dangerous by changing the texture of people's relationships. Mm. You know, you certainly get a lot of anxiety vis-a-vis um, -vis younger people about how their sex practices are changing in response to pornography. Uh, the idea that, you know, kind of uh, depictions of certain acts, um, lead young people to have less mutually fulfilling sexual encounters uh, because they want to mimic things that they see in pornography and what have you. Um, I, I kind of, I mean, do you kind of think that that's a legitimate concern or do you think that ultimately what is important is to cultivate the kind of independence of mind and, you know, the willingness to kind of vocalize what are your preferences? I think, um, I think realism is very important. And I think that rather than debate whether pornography or capitalism or any of these other things have ruined people and contaminated the way that they interact with each other. Um, also partially because that's a debate that I'm neither prepared for or confident of winning. Um, I think that it's more important to look at this is what we have now. The cat's out of the bag. It is easier to steal pornography from places that don't verify age. The you know, porno hub, red tube, all that kind of stuff. They don't ask you to put in your credit card information to make sure you're over the age of 18. Um, it's easier to steal pornographic content there than it is to go and purchase it. Um, and that's, that's not something that the porn companies are excited about. Just a side note. Um, like People are able to see any kind of sexual interaction. And the thing I think that is important to do now is to say, hey, let's like find your own morals. Use this or that or the other, like what your parents think or your religion or something as a template to get yourself through until you're able to really evaluate and say, yeah, I believe because of this and this and the way that my stomach feels, this is right. And I believe that this is wrong and I believe that this is right for me, but 
anyone who feels differently, like, go have fun. Um, and you, you need to find that and be able to judge for yourself. So there's this one blogger, I can't remember who it is. They blog about queer sex. That's like their, their self-given label. And I was reading and they said something about, um, something about how they haven't gotten to the point in their life where they're ready to make their sex scene. And that, that, kind of, that concerned me more than the idea of like still moldable minds, like very moldable minds watching the kind of work that I do because that implies that somehow like the truly liberated sexual creature has to do a sex scene and that's not, that's not right. Like if you want to get punched in the stomach or railed in the ass with a pine cone or something like strange and outside the, the normal spectrum of sexual desire, then go do that. I hope you don't like seriously destroy your rectum. I hope you speak to a doctor beforehand and like try to make it as safe as possible, so on and so forth. But go have fun. But at the same time, if you don't ever want to have any kind of sex aside from missionary position, dim lights, candles in the corner, staring lovingly into your partner's eyes, that is fine too. And that is the only sex that you should have if that is all that you want. One of the columns you wrote that I found incredibly affecting, uh, you wrote a column about um, how you're often asked about um, performing oral sex. And toward the end of it, you talked a lot about communication. And it, it reminded me, when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, uh, there was a young woman who was talking about, you know, she was very sexually precocious. And she was talking about some of her early experiences. And, and one thing that you said that really stayed with me is just that, well, the really important thing is to have a sense of humor and to feel comfortable laughing about everything because it's definitely gonna be really embarrassing. And I just remember finding that just insanely beautiful and just the idea of, because it's something that is so bound up with shame and when you think about people growing up and just, you know, kind of encountering another person in the sense that this delicate negotiation of, well, this other person has tastes and preferences and, you know, kind of how do these things align and what does this person need and that feeling of safety. And, you know, I wonder when you think about sex education and what have you and how much of it is just really built around uh, fear of disease and much else, whereas that this kind of education I think you provided in the column, just this kind of like basic idea of, a, of open communication, it, it's something that we really struggle with as a culture. Do you see that as part of the, the purpose of your writing? I mean, because, you know, partly, you know, oh yeah, yeah. One of, one of my favorite things when I write something, because I do a lot of like, um, I, well, it seems to me like I do a lot of, it's either here's this like graphic sexual thing that then maybe like baits you in, so then you're stuck reading the rest of it that has like the point, or like here's this like, embarrassing thing or like like let me tell you about the time that I had an ingrown hair that was like this fucking big to the point where I had like a huge lump next to my vagina and it was horrifying um, and you put any of that sort of thing on the internet and then people thanks to the porn career and then working with Vice and all that kind of thing people see it and when they respond with oh my god that happened to me and I was embarrassed or, oh my God, something that looks like that happened to me. Thank you for putting up a picture of the horror. Um, and that I didn't know what it was and I didn't have the money to go to the doctor because I thought maybe it was like vagina cancer and I didn't, it's like one of those, yeah. I, I know that really well. It's like if I don't actually, it's like Schrodinger's medical problem. If you don't go to the doctor, then it doesn't actually exist, um, which is a horrible <laughs> way to think. Horrible, horrible, horrible. But. Um, when, when people, they share their own stories. And when they're, I feel like people are more likely to show more of themselves in response to, like here, I'm open. Absolutely. And then they, and then yeah, that's all. Yeah, you're daring people. You're disarming them. Yeah. on the internet. And then it's, then someone comes in and says, oh my God, what's this? This isn't just one woman talking about this thing that, you know, maybe they feel that's not all sweetness and light and professionalism and maturity or this weird thing that's gone on with their body, but this is other people saying, you know, 
Like for instance, with the the character flaws, saying, "Yeah, you did act badly there, but you know, I'm supporting the fact that you realized it and are being self-aware and honest. And here's my story as well. And then they see that it's okay to be more honest and admit more of themselves. And we all have flaws. This isn't like ah, oh, this Madonna horror com comparison thing, which is just." can't believe that's not dead yet, but it's been coming up in the past few days where it's like, you're not either a virgin or a slut who will have sex with anything. Like maybe there, there are a few of those extremes in the world, but mostly it's in between and you're Why not- Why has it coming up a lot in the last few days, just out of curiosity? Um, there was, there were like a couple of people who said things to me where I felt like they were expressing anger that I'm not either like a complete drooling idiot or an absolute genius. It's interesting to me to see how the cultural perception of porn performers has changed. And because I mostly get feedback on myself, that's where I have the most information is how people have changed in their reactions to me. And it used to be a lot of, oh my God, you look like you could be my daughter. Like, your butt's not hanging out all the time. You talk like my daughter's friends do, but you have sex for a living. Like, what? And that would sort of like, people would react to that. That I either react You wrote react about this like, a bit when you were writing about having been at a wedding recently and just the idea of being an undercover presence and the idea of hearing people talk about this mythical other person who it turns out is you, but just absorbing that. It was totally fascinating. <laughs> that was really funny. <laughs> But it's, it's changed some now into like, they, they want to fit me into either the stereotypical stereotype of the porn star where it's, you know, you have no other options, horrible education, incapable of doing anything except for spreading your legs, um, which I'm sure there are a couple of performers in the porn industry who do fit that just because like with that Large many people, people yeah. you're gonna get the lowest common denominator. But I have never met a person who literally has no other options um, and no other skills. They might unfortunately not believe in their ability to use those other skills to like a sustainable degree. But um, so they're, they're unable to either fit me into that or you're a genius. You must be like a Mensa member and like, I bet you have a college degree. And I'm like, nope. Sometimes I say really dumb things and sometimes I have to go back and go, oh my God, I said this. And people like went like, yes. And now two years have gone by and so I was wrong. So when people hero worship you, that also makes you feel uncomfortable to some degree. Yeah. There's no, there's no critical thinking involved in that, which is dangerous. Like I'm, I'm almost 27. I'm still dumb. Like, and when I was, when I was 22, like I look at some of the things when I was blogging with like stream of consciousness and just screw capital letters and proper punctuation, I would have sentences that went on for like this long. Um, some of the things that I was saying were so dumb and wrong and misinformed. Um, and I'm sure that in another like five or 10 years, I'll look back at some of the things and go like, man, that's maybe I was going somewhere good with this, but like I was lost or it just is like fascinating flailing. to kind of yeah to kind of come of age in public and in this very visible way and with people who are very invested in I mean, when you were saying before about your columns the way that in a way okay so you're creating this intimacy this sense of a shared space perhaps it's false intimacy to draw someone in and then what i've noticed is that you do tend to have a message and an ethic that you're trying to promote with it but also just you know kind of what you're describing now just to do that, to put yourself out in the world, I mean, it also creates this vulnerability that's gotta be you know, very but taxing. That's, that's a thing that just about everyone in like, the outside, well, maybe even including the third world, um, but especially America and Europe, that's a thing that we're all going to be having to deal with on a smaller scale because the internet doesn't go away. So this whole, the transformation of someone from a 12-year-old who's just beginning to use the internet unsupervised and posting dumb, reactionary things, um, and then growing into an adult and then a self-aware adult and so on and so forth. Um, that's all gonna be on public record for pretty much everyone. 
which is in a way kind of interesting because again, we're going to have to accept more that people have flaws and they don't fit into this, you know, the brain version of the Madonna whore thing. This reminds me, um, of, I read a while ago that the term personality used to only refer to a tiny minority of people. Just some people were personalities. They were distinctive. They were unusual. Whereas now we think of a personality as something that everyone has. Yeah. It's just kind of fascinating. And so what you're describing is partly this idea that the kind of experience that you've had growing up in public and changing in public and being very visible in these different ways to at least certain people, that that's going to be universal. Hopefully, once we've all... Um once we've all had an experience where something dumb that we said without thinking gets taken out of context and thrown in our faces five years later, once we've all experienced that and gone, man, this sucks, maybe we'll stop doing it to each other. That's, that would be nice. Makes a lot of sense. Well, I remember when you were writing about um, birth control, and uh, it was just really harrowing to read. And, I mean, it's funny because it is actually a quite familiar experience. Well, it's also really melodramatic, which I think sometimes I get taken less seriously because it's like, I'm like, oh, man, it's killing me. I might have brain cancer or something. It's probably just a migraine. Uh. And then it's like when you hear that, like, 20 times a year for a couple of years because we're like friends or roommates or something, yeah. and suddenly it doesn't have quite the same effect. But I wonder, like, how do you feel? Okay, this is going to sound very strange, but I'm very interested in pain because I had a cold recently. And, uh, you know, kind of for like one night, I had this fever, I was feeling sweaty, and there was this real feeling like I've lost control of my body in the way that I normally have control of my body. And just to feel, and then thinking like, oh, maybe I'll die. Like, I wonder who I'd call if I died to make feel bad about it. And so I get, or just whatever, just these kind of like weird fantasies that, you know, and, and I was thinking- <laughs> To make feel bad about it. Yeah, exactly, like, hey, who could I guilt trip into buying me an ice cream cone because um, I'm feeling really sick? Get someone to do the kind of profile on you where they go and they ask like your friends and peers for quotes because it's like attending your own funeral. Oh, good God, that sounds totally mortifying. Like, no, it's great, because people, because they're like going on public record, they feel the need to like, really talk about nice things. Oh, and how awesome you are. And yeah, so that totally makes sense. It's like, like um, well, maybe I would you prefer to actually claim that I was dead to hear actually all of the sincere, <laughs> hateful things people would say. I, I think was, that would be more I fun. was going to say maybe you weren't this kind of 12-year-old, but now it seems like you were. You're like, I'm just, I hate you all. I'm going to run away and make you think I'm dead, <laughs> and you'll all be so sad, and you'll appreciate me. God damn it. <sighs> uh, well, no, I think this, but I think there was partly, it's also this idea, of, and this relates to your work, or as I crudely understand it from the outside. I think when I was so when I was a teenager, I remember looking in the mirror one day and just thinking, who is this person? Who is this body? What is this body? And just the idea of being in tune with your body, um, when you have these moments of sickness or physical discomfort, like what you were talking about with um, birth control, menstruation, your system being flooded with hormones, and just the idea that, you know, I wonder, you know, do you think that is actually a useful thing to kind of have this extreme discomfort and then to not have it? Because then you have the sense of this is what it's like to be in full control of my body and my faculties and this is what it's like when I'm impaired? Um, it's a very strange question, I realize. I was being trained to do things with my body with ballet when I was like four. Um, by the time that I have conscious memory, that's I just I was so used to living in my body and I always thought of it as a tool. That's, you know, I need, like, the, the brain is the valuable part and, like, the part that you want to invest all the resources in. Because even if you're, you know, due to genetic luck or whatever, if you have a body that is an asset that is strong or attractive or flexible or something and you choose to spend the early part of your life capitalizing on that, that's gonna, that's gonna go away a lot faster than your brain. So it's like, oh cool, I do porn. I'm using my body to like make a living right now, but I take those resources and put them into like I should be doing things with my brain and using my brain and setting up things that I can do later with my brain when my body gives out and it goes like, yeah, no, we're not we're not climbing up on that thing anymore. <laughs> or like vigorous sex using like our knees and hips for an hour for the camera like nope not happening um so 
it's, I've always seen it as a tool that carries around the brain and lets you go and do things and experience things and you can use it to make beautiful art that's visually pleasing or you can use it to lift things and build things um, or you use your, you use your hands to communicate by writing or typing, but it's, it's neither a trap nor like a discardable sort of thing to me. So, I was thinking about one of your columns, you were writing about um, being an aerialist and kind of swinging above uh, a surface and you know, how people ask you about how you use your body in that context. And, and I've, I, I find it interesting because you know, this is something that, okay, so you can buy a taco or you could buy a television. But then to buy the experience of seeing someone engage in this physical exertion and to exist in a space, it's something that's so, there's something so interesting about it's it. It's not the same on video. Like it's that kind of live performance. You can look at, for instance, Rudolf Nureyev. You can watch videos of him all day long, but you will never fully understand how great he was. Like you, when people talk about his work and they've only seen his videos, like I've only seen his videos, um, versus people who actually had the chance to see him perform live. There's, there's something about live performance that just can't be captured. What do you think is missing? So I mean, part of what's missing, I, I would suggest, is the element of danger, because it's that, that someone could screw up, you know, and like the possibility that something could go wrong. And then when you see someone doing this thing with vigor that is clearly, I mean, and to repeat this thing, but then to kind of see it go right, you know, kind of that almost is this self-denial and excitement. <clears throat> so um, I have a very good acquaintance, Laurie Penny. She covered the Occupy movement for like the Guardian. She covered the, um, or the New Statesman or something. And she, uh, she covered the, the austerity riots in England. Cause she just, she like happened to be there and then she was writing about it. And then that became the thing that she was um And the way that she discusses, cause she's one of those reporters that like gets in there and gets beat up and like, she's like, I want to be on the front lines recording what's happening on the front lines. And if somebody hits me in the head, then so be it. Um, but the way that she writes about it, um, it's, it's very compelling, but it's also like, there's something about actually being there and actually being in the sea of people. And it's, it's something about having all those people together. Do you feel like you have a hunger for experience? I mean, do you think that uh, satisfying your curiosity is a big part of your life and, and yes. what you want your life to be going forward? <laughs> yeah. One thing I find interesting about this is the idea that in a world that is an unstable and insecure world, in a world that's changing, um, you know, people who seek stability and security have a very hard time. Whereas people who seek novelty and change and surprise are in a way, you, you mentioned you? Google before. Uh, I think of myself as someone who seeks novelty and surprise, but I think that part of me wonders, do we seek novelty and surprise because that happens to be what the world gives us? You know what mm. I mean? Like, would we be stability, security-seeking people if the world were given, that were a possibility in the world, or, or do, maybe, have we just adapted to Maybe are you just smart enough to realize, like, oh, this is a thing that I ought to inoculate myself against, so let me... Exactly, exactly. Like, you know, the idea that the constant cultivation of our particularity and the idea that, you know, novelty and surprise, and I have my portfolio of novelty and surprise, and then you have yours, and then maybe we learn from each other through it. It's just, and like what I'm bringing to the table is my eclectic, quote unquote, you know, set of experiences. It just seems like for, for us, it might not be such a great burden because that's perhaps something that comes naturally to us, the idea of constantly, it's like you're foraging and you find like a shiny object in the forest. And you know, whereas I think for many people, just the thought of your social life and the world outside of your job being a job, because you know, we're now obligated to be interesting. I find that idea like really, I don't know, kind of, uh, and maybe I'm wrong, like, but I don't know. If, what do you think about, um, you know, the, do you feel that, we're all obligated to be interesting now, or do you think that that's just true for a small number of people? Um, I think there might be a like mutual societal expectation of being interesting, but back to your, like, I have an advantage because I was homeschooled and see things differently. Just because you expect it of me, in no way means that I have to give it to you. It might make my life harder. Like, society expects me to wear clothes. Maybe I don't want to wear clothes. 
Maybe I walk out of my front door and go to the corner store with no clothes on. I'm probably going to go to jail for public indecency, but that's, you don't have to. Like, um, you, society, society expects you to be interesting. That's great. Do you care about what all of society thinks? Because I can tell you from experience, trying to make everyone happy will just drive you insane. You will never make everyone happy and you're gonna go completely nuts trying to do so. Um, so you're, it seems that you don't tune out people who are, not, who are not seeing you the way that you think it's appropriate to be seen. You're not tuning out the people who hero worship you or the people who are very critical of you. No. But I mean, do you, what do you take away from them? I mean, do you feel like that criticism, is it just unpleasantness hovering in the background or does it shape how you kind of go about your daily life, I, um, do your work? So, like, for instance, I don't know if anyone else does this, but, like, if I read an article and it has um, a certain viewpoint, then I'll go look at other things that person has written and say, okay, so they just consistently feel this way. Or, like, oh, they're actually usually quite liberal and they're taking a conservative stance on this. So, like, that's, that's interesting. The Internet is a wonderful tool for getting a context of who a person is. So when someone says something negative and it's, I mean, if it's all caps, absolutely atrocious spelling, like it's just like absolute work to get through it, I'm not gonna read it. Um, if it just starts off mean, or if you call me fat, I'm automatically gonna, like that's just insane. That's like calling me tan. That is just not a true fact. Um, but when someone calmly, especially if there's someone that I've had a, interaction with before or seen comments from before, then if they say something negative, I listen to it. Like that's, there's, I mean, it's weighted based on how credible I think yeah. they are. But like I'm, I'm more likely, um, for instance, Laurie and I disagree on certain things, but I'm far more likely because I respect the way she thinks and I respect her writing and we have history of communicating with each other. I'm far more likely to listen to something that she critiques me on than I am someone that I've never seen their screen name or profile picture before that I've never met in person. So you obviously are someone who's very independent-minded and you know kind of adhere to your own standards, but you are constantly negotiating and interacting with this huge community of people, most of whom you'll never meet in person. So I, when you think about your community, the people you turn to, uh, do you feel like you have a kind of solid community of people who kind of sh and, and is it a group of people who are in your line of work or people who share your aspirations or kind of what is it that defines it? Um, I don't know yet. I, maybe it's something that an outside perspective would be more useful on or maybe it's something that I need more time and more maturity as a person. But like just off the top of my head, if I lined up the people that I communicate with and spend time with and really like have friendship type relationships where there's like mutual respect and mutual caring, I don't see really that much of a common, I guess they're all, they all do what they want to do because that's what they believe they should be doing or what's right to do or there's that. Um, but then there's, it's, there's varying degrees of community. Yeah. So like, um, <clears throat> like, again, back to the internet, like there are a few people in the world on the internet who think that because they pirated one of my scenes on a tube site and then put in the effort to follow me on Twitter, I owe them sexually graphic vagina shots every single day. <laughs> Like Instagram your pussy, mm. and I'm like, I, I, I can't for one. Like, do you know how Instagram works? Whatever. Mm. Um, but they're insane and overly entitled and whatever. And then there's with everything, like just so if if that's the that's the outermost yeah, circle, that's the far end. <laughs> so everything just just a little bit closer than that. There's kind of a social contract that's kind of like um, you know we all in certain parts of the world walk on the right side of the sidewalk and or drive on the right side of the street. And if you go to, say, um, 
Japan, where they walk on the left, you're, you're messing stuff up by walking on the wrong side. Or if you just walk on the left side of the street here in New York, and it's, you know, we have a cultural melting pot. We have a lot of different people. Um, we're, I think, generally less so now thanks to mass media, but we're generally slightly more educated about cultural differences. So we're not as thrown by people walking on the left side of the sidewalk um, as, for instance, like Oklahoma, where you get a lot less international travel going on. Um, but go to Oklahoma, walk on the left side of the sidewalk, see what happens. It's not going to be pretty. It's going to be a mess. And we have this social contract that's like, okay, so, you know, we find each other on the internet and you know, I ask for help about something and you give it to me. And the right thing to do there is then both for my own selfish purposes of like, oh, you are a smart individual that is a valuable resource, so I wanna keep you around. And because that's just, you know, somebody did something nice for me. So the nice thing to do is to be nice back. Then you, you kind of keep track of them in your head and you go, oh, this person had something interesting to say. So now if they ask a question, like, I'm going to answer their question because this might be an interesting thing to develop and explore. But there's a yeah. range, and it extends all the way from people that I want nothing to do with, and I wish they would just go away, through to, like, close friends that are then your support system and your safety net. And when they call you in the middle of the night, you drop everything and you're there for them. Man, we've, like, ventured all over the place, I guess. Wait, interestingly, we kept coming back to the same... Like, do you know anything about long-form improv? Uh, I do a little bit. Where it's you have um, you like you take this one idea, and then you generate some yeah. ideas, and then you do four but you come little back scenes. To homeschooling, yeah. and then you come back and do four <laughs> little scenes. Again. Like you hit each of those scenes again, and then sometimes when it's like really awesome and magical, the third time that they're hitting everything, it all like all the threads come together. Yeah, I think I think I think you're probably right. I think we're, we're cool. Stoya, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.